Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach, a recently published book by Sage Publishing. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars and shops, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with Chief Information Security Officers. Dr. Chatterjee is an Associate Professor of Management Information Systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia, and Visiting Professor at Duke University's Pratt School of Engineering. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to another episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast. Today, we will be talking about the myths and realities of passwordless authentication. I'm really excited to welcome our guest on today's show, uh, Mr. Ori Eisen, truly a highly distinguished player, member of the information technology community. He has spent the last two decades fighting online crime and holds over two dozen cybersecurity patents. He is the founder and CEO of Trisona that offers the world's first insured authentication solution. Prior to founding Trisona, Ori was the founder at 41st Parameter, the leading online fraud prevention and, and detection solution for financial institutions that was acquired by Experian in 2013. And prior to that, Mr. Eisen served as the worldwide fraud director for American Express. And prior to that, Ori was the director of fraud prevention for VeriSign Network Solutions. By developing new and innovative technologies, he skillfully reduced fraud losses by over 85% in just three months. So it's truly a pleasure to have Ori on the show today. Welcome, Ori. Thank you for having me, Dave, and hello to all the listeners. So Ori, when I was reading about your contributions about a passwordless world that we might be entering in the near future, I'm excited and I have a whole bunch of questions. And I'm sure our listeners have similar questions as well. So let's get started. And if you could give us a little bit of a primer on what is passwordless authentication. In the 60s, when computing really took off, many people wanted to use a computer and they got into the point of doing time sharing. So if you had 10 people trying to use the same mainframe, you got uh, the hours one to two and your friend got two to three. And in order to reserve your time slot, they used a password. It was easy and quick. Everybody knew how to do it. When the 90s come about, we are still using passwords. And again, maybe system admins and other people used it, but no one ever thought it would be embedded in every single factor of our life. And a factor is used with a pun. I think today when you look at what happened to Facebook just a few hours ago and mm -hmm. 1.5 billion users username and password leaked online. It really shows you how penetrable 
the world of cyber security is if we're only leaving passwords to be the gateway between you and your money, you and your identity, you and your medical records and so forth. So in 2015, uh, I joined both with Ted Schlein from Kleiner Perkins and Frank Abagnale on a journey to say, hey, can we start a journey, which I know everybody said can't be done and it's difficult and it's you know hard to change the world. But we started this journey to say, why not? What else needs to happen, Dave, for us to say, you know what, maybe passwords are not the most secure thing and our parents are not security experts. We should trust with creating long and complicated ans- uh, passwords. So the whole idea of getting passwordless is to remove this factor which as you probably know, contributes to 81% of all the data we see lost out there and just do away with it because the technology to do it is already in our pockets. It's just that we have not made an effort as a uh, you know, community to make that step. I couldn't agree with you more. It is such a great need. We need to move in that direction, absolutely. In fact, I'm sure our listeners um, would like to know that uh, according to the Verizon data breach report, in 2019 alone, 81% of hacking related breaches involved the use of lost or stolen credentials. And yet we are still engulfed in the world of passwords. Uh, Gartner predicts that by 2022, 60% of large and global enterprises and 90% of mid-sized enterprises will implement passwordless methods in more than 50% of use cases. That's a very good sign. So Ori, what are some, uh, you know, it's too good to be true, right? Like even now, I hate to admit this, but I have to keep track of 50 or 60 different passwords. They're not totally different, but they are different. And I am kind of ashamed that I'm I ha- I'm still doing that. And I haven't come up with something more sophisticated. But I wonder, you know, when there's a saying that when something is too good to be true, it probably is. So can you help dispel some of the myths around passwordless authentication? Dave? Remembering 40 or 50 is good news. You're lucky. If you're a system admin at a large company, you have 200 passwords you need to know. And many have to write them down, put them in an Excel sheet, or even get into a password vault. So the first thing I'll dispel is, why do I need to go passwordless if I'm using a password vault? Well, for two reasons. Putting your passwords into a password vault does not eliminate them. And if you were to inspect with Wireshark or Ethereal the connectivity between you and the server, you'll see that the password vault only saves you from remembering it, but it's still on the wire. So if you have malware or anything like a man in the middle, you are still revealing your credentials. That is the main reason that I'm a big proponent of this. Yes, there's a UX aspect that it's easy to use. Yes, it will be saving money because less people will call your help desk to say, I forgot my password, right? But from a security perspective, it's so easy just to get malware on a computer, wait for the good guy to get in, and that's it, you got their credentials. That is really what we need to change. So the first thing to dispel is that, uh, you know, password vaults do not change that, right? They kind of, 
put the passwords under the carpet, so to speak, so you don't see them. But let me tell you, they're still there and they're still transmitted on the wire. The second thing I would dispel is uh, many companies in the space who were not ready. Uh, they were kind of caught flat-footed by not having passwordless, devised very clever means and tricks to convince their customers that they have gone passwordless even though they didn't. Let me give you a classic example. Say that you log in from the same IP address every day. I can then tell my authentication system that if Dave comes in from the same IP to just let you sail through without needing to type username and password. So they call that quote unquote passwordless. That is really called risk-based authentication for those of you who are listening. And it still doesn't solve the core issue that if somebody gets a hold of your username and password, even if they come from a different IP address, yes, they will be challenged with it and with those static credentials they can get in. So I just want you to see that just doing the little bit, the small move is not really gonna save our society from this Scrooge of static passwords. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. That's very enlightening. So let's say if an organization wants to move in the direction of passwordless authentication, uh, there are many methods of doing so, right? And so how would, uh, you know, what would be some factors that would influence an organizational decision of adopting a particular method? And if I'm wrong, please correct me. Uh, you are the expert here. Yeah, let me tell you after doing this now for five years, what I would recommend everybody who's listening, whether they have their own website or blog on a personal level, or they're working for a company. Um, early on in our journey, we offered and still do a free plugin for WordPress. WordPress is one of the most prolific uh, website editors. Go implement Trisona for your WordPress site, even if it's your personal site, and play with it experience it, try to beat it, try to hack it, try to see what would it take to break it. And after you have that epiphany, ask yourself as a consumer and ask yourself as a security practitioner, well, why aren't we doing this everywhere? The reason we have given this for free, other than to learn user behavior and perfect software, is to give people something to start with. Otherwise, I agree with you, Dave, it feels like a bridge too far, like it's too good to be true. No, the year is now, the time is here, go try something because it's free. So you can't say, I can't get the money to do it. It's not about money anymore. The delta between going passwordless or not on many of the systems is just your sheer will. That's it. Now, I would assure you that in many cases when we offer it to consumers, it's free. So that's not a reason for an organization not to take it. But yes, you need to use the TrueSona app. So people who don't want to see our brand and want to buy our stuff as a white label, sure, you need to pay at some point. But the point is, it's so easy to get started now with integrations to most systems, most uh, uh, you know, SaaS services, that you cannot find any excuse of it's too difficult or too expensive or too hard. We have taken that off the table. Now it's all about the sheer will of people to stop using passwords and curb the funding of evil. And we can talk about that as we go through your line of questions. Yes, uh, in fact, I want to also inform the listeners that uh, you are one of those people who's who's very big on fighting online crime he's dedicated his life to fighting online crime he volunteers with thorn the digital defenders of children um, he founded ball to all a charity that donates free soccer balls around the world to children who have never had one he's a founding member of security canyon 
Arizona Cybersecurity Coalition. So Ari is truly a, a wonderful human being and it's such a pleasure to have him on the show today. Um, so Ari, following up on what you were talking about and pardon me if I'm repeating myself here, but at a little bit of redundancy never hurts. So when we say passwordless authentication, so how are users being authenticated? And what about that information that is being used to authenticate individuals? How is that secure? And if that falls in the hands of the wrong folks, isn't that concerning? Great questions. So let's take two steps back and again, help demystify what is passwordless authentication. The first thing to know is that it does not use static passwords that users pick. So that's the first thing to know. So obviously you can ask, well, what does it use? It used the very same architecture and technology we already have used for e-commerce in the form of HTTPS certificate and public and private keys. So if you buy into the notion that it's better to send my credit card online when it is encrypted, and I have the private key and the other side have their own private key and we have a common public key and you agree mathematically that this is safe. What if I told you that the credentials we use are just like a credit card that is then encrypted on one end and decrypted on the other end. So a man in the middle cannot just open them up, cannot reuse them. And furthermore, we've added a layer called anti-replay knowing that some of the malware will listen to our traffic and we'll simply try to replay it, not knowing what the values are, but they'll say, look, if it opened the door on Monday, it should open the door on Tuesday. Alas, the answer is no. When you look undercover into what we're doing, we've built a mechanism that if you send exactly the same transmission again, we would block it as saying, this is not real and this is not our true persona or true sona. So I can go into more details of how the, the mechanics work, but for simplification, if you know how PKI works, this is exactly it. We're using the crypto store on your mobile phone to store a private key that never leaves your phone. Hence it is distributed. So Dave, if we put our identity on a million different phones and you are a hacker, you now need to crack a million phones to get to them as opposed to one database filled with passwords. So it's the same kind of technology, but now democratized through the fact that most people have a smartphone and have some kind of a biometric to unlock it. Okay, okay, good to know, good to know. Um, so when I was doing my research in, on this topic and I was trying to learn about the pros and cons of passwordless authentication, something that came up was incompatibility with legacy applications. Could you speak to that? Absolutely. When we look into the future and we see protocols like FIDO, we will absolutely use it when you can but the world is filled with computers and systems that lived in the past and never knew this new standard is coming. So we started way before FIDO existed or became a standard with some proprietary technology that allows us to scan a QR code on an ATM, then move the session to your mobile phone, extract the identity as we discussed before, and send it to the back end to be authenticated. And if you're a little bit more technical or you know the IAM space, what happens is that the back end sends a SAML assertion to the system to say, yep, this is Dave, please open his door. So with everything that does not use the latest technology, we kind of downgrade the interface to use either push notification or a QR scan to invoke the process 
but from there on the phones take it and we don't need the older systems to have all the bits and pieces. They just need to be able to say, yep, this is you in the same exact way, Dave, that username and password would say, yep, this is you. Okay. Now you, you mentioned the FIDO, what is FIDO? FIDO is a protocol that began about 10 years ago to help take physical token keys, like almost the USB sticks and put a private public key on those things in order to authenticate. It's just that now every phone in the world has that capability. So while I appreciate uh, the efforts done there, and I do think they are used in many cases that you can't enter a phone into a secure room, totally get that. For most consumers and our parents, the key is not to change their UX. If they log in into their phone every day by putting their fingerprint, or if they are using their face, let them also identify their true persona by doing the same thing, especially when the underlying technology is exactly the same. So I'm a proponent of not changing the taboo, not changing the security behavior because then you have something to overcome. Let's make it easy, ubiquitous and democratize it. Like we've democratized the use of Facebook, right? Or Instagram, right? Let's use the ability of having every phone having biometrics and an ability to store a certificate to secure the identities once and for all and stop with the static passwords. Fantastic. So in that spirit of making it easy, so it seems like we don't have to choose between convenience or security. We can have the best of both the worlds, right? The answer is yes, and I know, Dave, many people who are cynical will say, well, you say that, but unfortunately, we have 60 years, 60 years of heritage where security was always about adding another padlock to a door, always. So management never wanted to add more security because it translated directly to more friction, which translates directly to less sales. I mean, let's be honest, if the marketing and salespeople would control the website, there would be no password. They'll just say, come in and buy something, right? Exactly. So the, those two worlds always had a friction. And when I was the head of risk at one of the largest credit card companies, I witnessed this firsthand. Mm -hmm. I wanted to help people stop being victims of fraud and ask them to be more secure. It's just that in the very means I've asked them to do it, they now get confused and they forget what the secret was. So they call me to tell me I got stuck. So it's almost like you give them enough rope and they'll hang themselves, right? Today, we live in a world where I love the fact that the main platforms like Samsung and Apple and Google have made it so easy to use biometrics and have put it on every phone. And all I'm saying is like, why not harness that ease with great security and yes you can have the best of both worlds but you couldn't say that 10 years ago very true very true now the solution sounds great and we need to move in that direction what about the cost aspect of it i've i've read that the cost implications can be significant is, is there any truth to that so let's parse it down mm -hmm. i'll start i know this is not a commercial but i and other companies in our space encourage people to start with free solutions. Free as in not even a contract. Go integrate an API to your website, go tell people you can download this app to get in, just so you can see that the baby steps could be taken today without any friction whatsoever because we want the world to become passwordless, right? Yep. After that, if you have a brand issue and marketing and you want to do it, as I said before, as a white label, yes, you need to pay. But to get going, 
everybody who's listening to this podcast can start today, okay? So where are the costs? The costs are in changing. Every time you train, let's just say you have a company with 10,000 employees, and up until now, they've used username and password and a, on an authenticator app with OTP. Yes, you need to send them emails to say, next month, we're upgrading to passwordless. You will not use this anymore. Here's how you will log in. Clearly, there is a, an adjustment period, and there might be some cost of people asking questions. Yes, but that compared to getting hacked, that compared to letting the bad guys win, that compared to every two months you get a call about, I forgot my password, diminishes completely. And that's really where the hurdle is. I don't think it's in acquiring the software, Dave, anymore. It is all about change management and getting on a passwordless journey, as we call it, because no one's going to do a big bang change and just change overnight. We don't uh, recommend that. But if you just change your desktops and then you change your SSO, for the most part, no one's using passwords anymore in your company. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, what about the regulations aspect of it? I was reading somewhere that regulations require clear information on data storage, considering the sensitive nature of passwordless data when it isn't stored appropriately. There could be a lot of issues. Would you, how would you react to this statement? Yeah, I, first of all, I love the question. Um, I'm going to give the listeners an example of what does it really mean and now how we're handling it. Say that um, we live 30 years in the past, okay? And every time you come to inspect your vehicle, you, they need to put something in your exhaust pipe to measure emissions, right, Dave? Mm -hmm. So you certify that you're not a polluter. Okay, now we roll the tape 30 years and the first Tesla comes off the manufacturing and they come to the DMV and the person there does not know where to stick the thing to measure the emissions. So they might say, I'm sorry, I can't certify you because my instrument to measure pollution cannot be used because you don't have an exhaust pipe. But I hope it is obvious to you and the listeners that, what do you mean? This is like better than any exhaust ever. This doesn't have any emissions. But there's a delta now between the forms and the processes we've used in the past, which all relied on having passwords and the reality of no passwords. So I'll give you an example. When an examiner comes to a bank and says, okay, I want to see that you guys are maintaining eight characters and uppercase, and but the bank says, whoa, 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 we don't have passwords at all. Like we don't have them. So don't, we don't need to maintain them to be long. Sorry, that's a problem for me because the process and the protocol say your password must be this length. Do you see the dichotomy? It's very similar to a car that doesn't have any emission and you're trying to measure its emissions. So the way we're solving it now, Dave, is let CISOs keep any password they want. It could be 200 characters in the system. So when the examiners come, they say, oh my God, you're the best password I've ever seen. But in parentheses, no user is ever going to use that. But that is really the period we go through right now in order to appease the past even though it makes no sense anymore, right? In a world without passwords, but we don't want to fight it. We don't want to uh, swim upstream. So we just let CISOs store whatever you want in your systems, show it to your examiners, but your users will never need to know this password nor uh, use it. And you as the CISO can change it every week if you wanted to, because it's now just a security gate. It's not a usability uh, hindrance or anything like that. Okay, that's... That's very, very good to know. Um, what about privacy concerns? You think users, uh, you know, how would you alleviate privacy concerns uh, 
amongst users? Love that question. So going back to the fact that we're using a public and private key, you can assign it to a very long string that does not reveal the identity. That can completely be anonymous. But note that the only thing we can attest to with the SAML2 assertion is like, this key is back, but I can't say if it's Dave or not Dave. Okay, so that's the basic level. It could be completely anonymous. And in fact, most of the hardware keys we talked about before are anonymous because you simply don't know who purchased them. Okay. On top of it, we are big believers in hanging an identity through the process of identity proofing. And it could be a minimum of email magic link. So I'll send you an email, you go click a link. So I know you're the owner of this link all the way to a scan of a driver license and checking in the DMV that you really are who you say you are. Uh, verifying your phone records. There are different services you can layer on top of the baseline of just a certificate in order to know the true persona. And that is key when you open a bank account and you need to go through AML and KYC checks or you want to get your medical records. And I really need to know I'm opening it up to Dave and not to somebody who pretends to be Dave, right? So depending on the use case, we can start with full anonymity all the way to as much identity proofing as you want, but the core technology is the same. And in all of these use cases, you don't need to remember a static password. Wow, very, very interesting. All right, I keep uh, throwing questions at you and you just uh, address them so effectively. Another question for you. So, you know, how does passwordless authentication, you know, how, where does that factor in? when it comes to multi-factor authentication, mobile multi-factor authentication, how are, how are they connected? Great question. In the past, we only had username and password, and that is only one factor. And if you don't mind, I'll give a primer to people who are hearing about authentication for the first time now. There are only three factors. Something that you know, like a mother's maiden name or a password, something that you are, which is usually biometrics, so a template of your fingerprint, of your iris, a voice print, and or your face ID, or a factor of something that you have. And that could be a physical token, a document, or anything like that. So when you say multi-factor, what you really mean is that you have more than one factor being used in the authentication. And to illustrate, username and password are both elements of something that you know. Hence, it's a single factor authentication. Now, if username and password were really strong and secure and worked, you would never need to factor. You would never need multi-factor. Why? Because it works. That's it. Because of data breaches and everything that you read in the news, having username and password that is easily obtainable is just not good enough. And that was the source in the early 80s mid and mid-90s to add a second factor. And the poster child was RSA and their tokens that change, OTP tokens, that says, I'll give you username and password, knowing that you could reveal them by mistake to a fisher or something like that. So now I'll give you a token that expires every 30 seconds. And that is something that you have, because it's a token, physical possession. And together, they created a two-factor authentication system. Okay. So how does it translate to the mobile phone? While a mobile phone on its own is a token of something that you have, it's a factor of something that you have, by the mere fact we place a certificate on it, we have a high level of assurance that this is the right certificate. Because most of the phones today have a biometric login into them, 
we can consider that as something that you are. So face ID and the certificate give you two separate factors. It's just if they're not using the original factor of something that you know, namely a password. So we're still in 2FA or MFA, but it does not use the single factor of something that you know, like a password. Okay. So it becomes stronger. Multi-factor authentication becomes much more stronger and effective if you were to go passwordless. That's, Correct. And, uh, and to give you the example from before, let's just say there's an organization and all their customers' passwords are in one database. If I breach that, I basically got into all your accounts. However, if the same organization puts a public key and a private key on every one of their customers' phones, clearly the database doesn't have those keys because that's how PK works. That means I'll have to go and hack one phone at a time, which I hope demonstrates how effective it is and that it uh, lowers the profitability for the bad guys, which is really what we're after, to make it so difficult that they go do something else and not try to hack the accounts. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about the bad guys and let's talk about uh, your motivation, what got you doing what you're doing and all the great things you've been doing in trying to trying to reduce or fight online crime. Our mission at Risona is to curb online evil and the funding of evil. And I know it sounds uh, very altruistic. If you really track everywhere we put our software and what happens after, you see that the attack rate goes down. What do I mean? The bad guys who were there up to a week ago and could just enter in with username and password now get stuck. There are simply no username and password fields to put in and they can't use their methods. So they have to go elsewhere and that curbs their funding. The way I got into it is when I was working at the large financial institution, I started seeing how the crime happens and who ends up benefiting from it if you follow the money. And you'll see, Dave, that losing the money for the bank is not fun. But when the bad guys get a hold of these funds, they use it for five things that are far worse, like narcotics and human trafficking and terrorism and weapon smuggling and also child exploitation online. That is what I'm after. When you see what evil is done with the money that gets stolen, all of a sudden it is no longer a job or managing your risk on some Excel sheet. It becomes a mission. And I'm proud to tell you, every Trusona that is working at Trusona, part of their uh, interview process and part of how people join this mission is to have that need to curb that above and beyond selling software to banks and healthcare companies and so forth. Very commendable. I, I applaud your efforts. I hope you continue to have great success. Um, along those lines, Ori, um, there are lots and lots of people out there who are not very technically savvy. The level of cybersecurity awareness around the world is okay, not great based on my, um, my experience talking to the global community. So there's, there's a need for a lot of help. What tips or recommendations would you have to anyone from protecting themselves from different types of attacks? And I know this is a very broad question and uh, you know it, it, it may not be possible to give a very comprehensive response, but something is better than nothing. So give some tips for, uh, for our listeners. Will do. 
So let's take today, it's uh, October 4th, a Monday, that we're recording this, 2021. Uh, in the news today, if you load CNN.com, you'll see that the headline news is that Facebook has been uh, disrupted, okay? I assume that most of you are Facebook users by design or Instagram users. So assume that today you were told point blank your account information now resides in the underground and is being sold. One way to think about it is all is lost and our hair is on fire and we can't do anything. But everybody who listens to this podcast can do one thing today, which will completely undo or usurp the bad guys. Change your password today or as soon as Facebook is up. I know you can't do it right this moment. But when you read about the next hack, the next breach, whether you are a member of that organization or not, that should be a very good reminder for you to change your passwords. Why? Because the moment you change it, who cares that the old ones were stolen? It's like old keys to a house and you change the lock. It doesn't matter anymore. Now, I know some of you would say, oh, my God, with the rate of uh, breaches today, I need to do it every other day, which, by the way, is the very reason why we're talking about this. That's why we want to get rid of passwords. So as a society, we don't need to do it. But until the day we really live a passwordless life, take a note every two weeks, every four weeks, every 90 days, just put a cadence in your calendar, just like you get a haircut and you go, uh, you know, to uh, change the oil of your car, to change the passwords, at least to your more important services like bank, healthcare, and so forth, such that if the data will be breached, and I hope you get the cynicism in my line, your data has been breached. It's just that you might know it or not. So assume that it was breached. And by changing it, you are helping to curb the funding of evil just by switching the key. And you can, because it doesn't cost you anything. Again, it's just sheer will at this point. It's not about money. It's not about difficulty. You know how to change your password. So go do it. That's the first tip I will give, because then you are getting yourself out of the mass hacks and you reduce the chances of you being hit. Excellent. So changing your password is an extremely important thing that you should be doing, as Ori said. Or if you could add a few other uh, tips relating to how can you have a strong password and what's the most effective way of storing your password. Though I, when people ask me, I say, rather than store, try to remember. If you forget what's the worst that can happen, you can you have to go ahead and uh, reset. That's better than having it available somewhere that is accessible. So, but what are your thoughts about a strong password and how best to store passwords? Yeah, first of all, I want to agree with you and echo what you said. One of the worst things I see people do is put all their passwords in a password vault and they protect all their passwords with a, wait, here's a little sound, <laughs> password. No, that's not good. How do you take all your passwords and protect them with one password? That means if someone gets to that one master password, you have given away the keys to the kingdom. Let me pause for effect. That is why I'm against password vaults, because we're making it easy for the bad guys to say you just need to guess one now in order to get the rest of them, right? So I'm not for that. If you want to create a password that is both strong and memorable, Again, I may go off uh, what most of the recommendations are, which is to create a long password that is filled with letters and numbers. 
those suggestions have never come from human research. They have come from very uh, practical mathematician who said, this will be harder to guess because of entropy. Now, for all of you who are CS students, yes, entropy is correct, but think about your parents. They're not a machine. They're not a computer. The older they get, the faster they'll forget their passwords, right? So we have to not keep propagating what doesn't work, which is 20 character passwords with uh, you know, uppercase and lowercase. You have to give them a different path to success. And clearly the password password or 123456 should not be what people use. So what I would recommend is to use a passphrase you can get to entropy, even though it's less type of characters, but with more letters. So if you use something like, my password is my name, right? Just that full sentence, you have now made a password that may be 23 or 20 characters, but it's only a sentence, it's very accessible and does not have to have upper, lower, and a number. Unfortunately, some websites will not let you use that because of the propagation of forcing you with rules to pick passwords that will be hard to remember, which will make you forget them and call the service provider. So I know that's a vicious cycle, that if you can pick something that is simply long, but is pure sentence, does not have to have special characters, that is way better than an eight character password that is with uh, special characters. Yeah, I couldn't agree with, uh, with you more. So having using a passphrase and changing your passwords frequently and try not to store it anywhere because it's a myth that if you use a password vault, uh, people can't access, access it. People can. The server administrator has access to that kind of information. So th the less you put out there, either on paper or even online, the better keeping it very simple and keeping it jargon free. Fantastic, this was uh, fabulous. We covered a lot of topics. Now we need to do something fun, uh, Ori. Uh, share with us uh, that VC joke that I heard in one of your other podcasts the other day. I think our listeners would love to hear that joke. How about I'll do this? I'll say I prepared a different one for you today. I didn't okay. even know you're going to ask. So I'll, I'll tell both. And then in edit, you can decide what you want to uh, okay. share. Uh, the VC joke goes like this. A man is in the hospital and he needs to go through a heart transplant. And the doctor comes and say, wow, you're in luck. We have three different uh, candidates to give a heart and all of them match your uh, blood type. So uh, you can pick. So the patient says, wow, tell me a little bit about the, who the donors are. He says, well, one donor is a person who just died uh, at the end of a race. They were an athlete. Everything about them is great, but they just had a heart attack. So you can have their heart. He says, okay, what's the second candidate? He said, the second candidate is somebody who's very healthy, uh, maintained a great lifestyle and just was hit in an accident. He said, wow, that sounds good. He says, what's the third one? Third one uh, is we got a, a VC, a person who's from the venture capital community, and he died unexpectedly today. And the patient says, ah, I want that heart for sure. And when the doctor says, why? Why do you want that heart? He says, it has never been used. <laughs> love it, love it. And what's the other one? Okay, so I'll tell you now the second joke, which I uh, hope to tell today and to make it interesting and unique, Dave, for you and your listeners. Uh, the husband is asking his wife, honey, can you please remind me what did you set the bank password to? Because I can't remember it. 
And she says, are you writing this down? He says, yes, I am. And she starts reading it. Mickey, Pluto, Rapunzel. And she goes on and on and on. And then she says, Washington, D.C. He says, oh my God, this password has like 64 characters. Why did you make it this? She's, and the wife says, well, they said I need to use a capital and eight special characters. <laughs> love it, love it. Ori, it's been truly a pleasure uh, talking to you. Thank you for educating me and my listeners. And we learned so much today. I uh, would love to have you back again to share more of your expertise and your thoughts. Any final words uh, to wrap up this session? Ask yourself, why have you not pushed your service providers to go passwordless? And if you're at work, ask your team, why are we not prioritizing it? And start a journey. I hope you can have some links, Dave, to people who want to try for free to start. I hope today, if I'll say, send me your resume in a fax, you'll think that it's crazy. I hope that using a password will be just as crazy a few years from now. Thank you again, Ori. It was a pleasure having you. A special thanks to Ori Eisen for his time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also, subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization.